0: Grab your Bibles, please. Open up to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. Um, on on many weeks, s- certain people complain that our air conditioners, you know, is too intense. Where are you all at now, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, air conditioning is our church's spiritual gift, and so <laughs> yeah, praise the Lord for uh, for what we've got here. You know, we were forced relocation to this, uh, to this campus, uh, and it's like been the best thing ever. And so if that's not some kind of a spiritual lesson that God can speak through what you think is going to be a disaster uh, and can bless you through it, I don't know. I think that's one of the best moments in our, in our church history. All right, Luke 24, you should be there by now. Let's say a word of prayer, and then we'll jump in. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much. That uh, we get to be here uh, after after this much time walking through the account that Luke has given us um, on the story of Jesus Christ, the Savior to the whole world. God, we pray that uh, that as we as we look into the text today, um, we would be looking for the right things. I mean, sometimes we're looking for uh, for some kind of a motivational speech. Sometimes we're looking for just some. Uh, emotional inspiration. Sometimes we're looking for a theological insight, new information we haven't heard. Wipe all that away for a moment, Lord. Those are those are uh, wonderful extra blessings, but what we want when we read your word is to get a clear picture of who you are and what you've done and how that changes our lives. And we pray that that would be uh, precisely what takes place here, that as we, uh, as we read about what happened after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that something would, would take place in our hearts and challenge us to live in holiness, transformed, renewed in our minds, uh, holy and pleasing to you. Bless this time for your glory in Christ, and we pray, amen. We look today at Luke 24, it's the final chapter of the book, the final sermon in our series, Jesus has been crucified and buried, and we as the readers stand in very different perspective than the apostles in that moment, than any of the characters in that moment. We know that Jesus' death on the cross was to fulfill Scripture, and we know that He was the Lamb of God, He was sacrificed to pay for our sins. We know that repentance from our ways and faith and trust in him as Lord and Savior means salvation to anyone who believes. So we know these things. And yet the characters in the story at this moment where Jesus has just been crucified and buried didn't quite get that. So there's a dramatic irony. We know what, what's really going on. They do not. And we're just waiting for the moment where they catch on to be where we're at in a way. Now the reason why we know that Jesus, uh, we know that uh, that Jesus accomplished salvation for anyone who believes. The reason why we know that, is specifically because Jesus didn't stay dead. Jesus, as he foretold, was raised by God back to life. Did he die? Yes. Did he die for our sins? Yes. Was that enough? Did that pay the entire cost? How would we know? What if he died? What if he died a sinless death like he did? What if he died a sinless death and then stayed dead? Would we ever know whether or not he accomplished what he accomplished? We wouldn't know. We would I mean, we would have to just kind of go, I think he did. I hypothesize. Did he stay dead, defeated by sin? No, he did not. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the proof positive that his holiness is greater than our wickedness. That his good is greater than our evil. The final chapter of Luke addresses the resurrection, showing us how people came to realize what took place in the life and the death of Jesus once they came to discover that he has come back to life. Luke's going to tell it to us in four different locations. So we've got four different scenes going on here, and I'll put them up. The first is at the empty tomb. This is all in chapter 24. So the empty tomb will be verses 1 through 12. And then second is the road to a town called Emmaus, which is seven miles away from Jerusalem. So the road to Emmaus, that's uh, verses 13 to 35. Third is the reunion at Jerusalem. There's a reunion that takes place at Jerusalem in verses 36 to 49, and then finally, uh, the hill of ascension, and, uh, well, it's not really the hill of ascension. It's where Jesus ascended to heaven. That's on the Mount of Olives. It sounded weird to put the Mount of Ascension. I just put the hill of ascension. Mount and hill are the same thing in Greek, okay? All right, so that's verses 50 to 53, the hill of ascension. That's the Mount of Olives, in case you want to know the actual location, and that's actually not told to us in Luke. That's told to us in Acts chapter 1, verse 12. So it's the Mount of Olives, that's where he sent it. You. you don't care. All right, so let's start with the empty tomb, right? Empty tomb. It's the first day of the week, meaning it's a Sunday. Uh, some women who will be named in, verses, uh, in verse 10, some women will go to the tomb, which is, uh, if you remember, it's a cave. It's, you know, it's a hole that's cut out of a rock. All of Israel's a rock, right? It's a, you, you can't dig very deep in, in Israel unless you're gonna hit rock. Then you have to carve, you have to mine and stuff like that. So uh, the cave or the tomb, is really a hole in the side of a giant rock. That's the hill. And, uh, and then it's sealed with a stone. So, like, you know, you have the cave. In front of the cave, you have, like, a gutter. They'd, they'd have, like, this little gutter, and then they'd put this huge stone there that would take several men to, uh, you know, a good amount of time to get into place, to roll in front of the tomb, to close it, to kind of block the smell of decomposition, and then it take a long time for them to roll it away to open it up, right? So that's kind of the location that we're at. We start in chapter 24, verse 1. It says this, "...but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb." But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Okay, so these are the women that are there. Uh, It's an empty tomb. The stone is rolled away. And keep in mind, that's a five-foot diameter rock, right? It it weighs one and a half to two tons. Uh, It takes takes a lot of people to do that. It's a lot of effort. So, uh, you know, when people say Jesus just kind of moved the stone away, uh, you have to wonder, uh, this man was just killed two days ago. You know, all his muscles are ripped up on his back and nails in his hands and feet, you know, so like holding anything and, and standing on anything, if, if, if we're trying to give it a natural explanation for how this happened, if you're an unbeliever and you go, there's no miracles and there's no God at work here, this guy just woke up from his, uh, his physical trauma and then just decided to move this two-ton stone by himself, um, it, that's not going to work. That simply won't do. It's not, it's not a reasonable alternative. Uh, the tomb is, is, is here, it's empty, the stone has been rolled away, and we need an explanation. And here's the thing, here's the frustrating thing, okay? Do you notice what we skipped here? Right, we get to the tomb, the tomb is empty, the body's missing. Do you notice what we skipped here? The resurrection, right? Where, where's that part? There's no moment of resurrection, we don't. We like Luke just goes like, yeah. The next morning, or on Sunday morning, you know, he was crucified on Friday, and on Sunday morning, uh, this is the third day, they came and the tomb was empty. We missed the resurrection; it already happened. Luke skips it. So, I, you know, I went looking, and you know, Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all four gospels, none of them actually describe the moment, the event of the resurrection. They don't. They don't talk about what you know, like what did it look like? I, I think of Beauty and the Beast. You know, at the very end, where where Beast, you know, like, spoiler alert, he gets changed back to a human, okay? And, like, he gets lifted up in the air, and he twirls around, there's light everywhere, and, you know, and then, like, he, he turns back to what kind of looks like a human at the end, right? He looks kind of weird, but but that's, like, I think of that, I'm like, is that what that looked like when Jesus is in the tomb, and then, like, lights come on, and you can hear, like, this angelic choir or something, you know? There's, uh, is there, like, some kind of music playing from heaven, trumpets blasting, uh, who knows? I don't know. It, it just skips it. It's so frustrating for me. All four gospels skip the event. They start uh, talking after the resurrection has already happened. Is anyone else bothered by this? Right? How did it happen? What did it look like? Was there bright light? Was there was there noise? Was he groggy? Right? Like when he when he came back, he's it, just like, oh wow, what a ride. You know, or like, does he just show up and he's like Vidal Sassoon clean? <laughs> you know, he just wakes up and everything is bright. Is his is his hair all done and stuff? Only God knows. We have no like look into this, and I think the reason why is because that's not really where our attention should be. In fact, we shouldn't even be surprised by the fact that he was raised back to life, much like the, the gospel authors don't even talk about the physical agony and the, the grueling uh, torment that Jesus went through. You know, like What did all the damage to his body do? How much pain did he feel? They don't really dwell on that. They just kind of say matter-of-factly the events that took place. You know, They nailed him to the cross, they raised him up, and then he, he had a conversation with some people, like the, the thieves next to him, and, and then he died. You know like you don't get a whole lot of dwelling on that you just you get you get this these are the events because they're not trying to win you over with this emotional moment they're trying to make you go this was what always was supposed to take place so yeah it happened you know just as he said he would why would you even be surprised by this all four gospels note that the resurrection happened on Sunday morning this be, this is a huge deal this is why the christian day of worship why churches meet on sundays because that's the day that salvation was proven. The resurrection took place on a Sunday. And think of that, right? Because the Saturday that Jesus was in the tomb, if he was crucified on a Friday, he died on a Friday, and then he was in the tomb all day Saturday, nothing happened. And then Sunday morning, he's raised back to life. That Saturday is the last official Sabbath. Right? That's the day God rested on that seventh day. And then when the first day of the week came, he did his work again. Let there be light. Jesus, the light of the world, is is, uh, brought back to life. This is a huge deal for a Jew who grew up holding the Sabbath as their ethnic, religious, national identity. That was a sign of the covenant. It's the fourth commandment. To break the Sabbath was a capital crime. That's what set them apart from all the Gentile nations, all the non-Jewish nations. So to change worship from the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath, to the first day of the week was monumental. It uh, it shows you the strength of the convictions of these early believers, how much they're willing to change, how much they're willing to endure opposition from their own kinsmen because they were immediately called heretics for that specific issue. Now, the women are here, and and the the tomb is empty, and while they're confused, they'll meet two men. They're about to meet these two men, who will turn out to be angels in verse 24. Uh, They're called angels in verse 24. They'll also be called angels in the other Gospels, in Matthew and and, in Mark, okay? So it's going to be called two men right now. You should know they're angels. Uh, Verse 4. While the women were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the women... And the women remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. So Luke says there were two men, or two angels. Matthew just says, uh, an angel, he only talks about one of them. Mark, says, uh, Mark 16 says, a young man, so all, again, only talks about one of them. That's not weird, right? The, uh, it, it's fine. There, there were two there. Luke lets us know there were two there, but in Matthew and Mark, they only talk about one of them, because only one of them seems to be doing the talking, and that's fine. The angels look like men. They're in dazzling white clothes, uh, which is very much like Jesus looked in the Transfiguration, you know, uh, w- earlier in the book, right? When when he was transfigured, he was like dazzling white and everything, gleaming white, glowing. So there's this glory, a holiness that's uh, that's coming off from these uh, these angels, and that's why the women, as with anyone who sees an angel, falls down to the ground, bowing in fear, right? That's consistent. That's a normal response to angels. Uh, and it's not unusual for Matthew and Mark to focus on just one when there are two there. It's fine. Um, and that happens a lot, by the way. The authors talk about, like, for instance, there were, like, two blind men in uh, Matthew 20 and Mark 10 and Luke 8, but, like, in, in some of the accounts, they only talk about one of them. Or there were two demon-possessed men that came from the tombs in Matthew 8, Mark 8, and, and Luke 5, but, like, some of the accounts only talk about one. Yeah, you don't care. Okay. So uh, so the angels give this this message, right? It's the point of Luke's gospel. Uh, it starts with this, this question. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Why, why would you do that? Are you looking for someone who's alive? Then you shouldn't be at a cemetery. Right? That's, that's kind of what they're saying. And uh, it's nice. I, I like the, the angels are kind of snarky, you know. Like the, there's almost like a, a little sarcasm there. It's fun. Um, Jesus isn't dead; he's alive. It's it's like how Luke writes in Acts chapter two, verse twenty-four. Um, you know, it, it, it's impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And the angels, uh, they're like, you know, he told you this, right? He told you this. It's like he told you the Son of Man has to you know, be delivered over, and he has to be betrayed and die and then be uh, raised back to life. He says this, and he says, Jesus says this multiple times throughout Luke. If you've been with us in Luke, you heard it in uh, chapter 9, verse 22, chapter 9, verse 44, chapter 13, verse 33, chapter 17, verse 25, chapter 18, verses 31 to 34, and then chapter 22, verse 37. You, You hear it multiple, multiple, multiple times. Many times Jesus gave this very, very clear statement that he would be betrayed, delivered over, killed, he would rise. And like in those verses that I named, there were, there were two times where it's followed by a statement that the, the, the disciples just didn't get it. They're like, what? What does that mean? Killed. It's weird that they didn't get it, right? They didn't get it. They didn't quite understand. But later today, on that Sunday morning, they will. These women that are here, they're followers of Jesus from the beginning. You know, they're from Galilee, and they too heard these words all throughout the, the book of Luke. They were journeying with him and stuff. So they heard everything Jesus said. So what the angels are doing in talking to these women, like, why are you looking for someone who's alive among dead people? He told you he was coming back to life. Uh, when they're saying this, this is both a rebuke for not believing, and it's an invitation to start believing. And Scripture has this way of doing that. rebukes you for not believing, but then invites you to start believing. It doesn't hold this grudge, but it says, like, all right, knock it off. Stop denying the truth. Stop ignoring it. Put it on. The understanding was concealed from the, from the disciples, it seems, you know, like maybe God was making it so that they couldn't understand, or maybe they themselves just, I mean, these aren't even educated men, so maybe they just weren't quite there understanding the difference between when he's speaking literally versus figuratively, I don't know, who knows, or maybe it's both, who knows, but they just didn't get it. If God were involved in that, if God is the one that's withholding understanding, then certainly God will be involved in providing understanding later. And maybe we'll get a remark on that. Um, But now is the time to start getting it. Now is the time to start understanding, right? It's at the resurrection that we should understand the crucifixion and everything that Jesus said before that. Once the resurrection happens, it starts putting together, lining up everything that Jesus has been teaching and starts to have everything make sense. So, verse 10. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe the women. In contrast, right, if you think about it, in contrast to uh, Israel's negative regard for women, Luke very intentionally puts women in a positive light consistently throughout his book. Israel didn't allow women to testify in court. They were considered inherently liars. And yet God entrusted these women to be the first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. God's like, I I know who these women are, and they're not liars. They are going to tell the truth, and I will trust them with it. Mary Magdalene and Joanna, we met them in chapter 8. We have no idea who this other Mary is, the the mother of, of James. And then there are other women, you know, um... Yeah, we don't we don't know for certainty who that, that last one is, but Luke shows that these women were involved with, uh, with with the whole ministry from the beginning, and then even in Acts chapter one, these women will be with the, with the apostles in like this big prayer meeting, um, you know, and then and then Pentecost will take place and all that stuff um, in the in the chapter right after that. Luke follows God's lead. If God entrusted these women to be the witnesses, then Luke writes it down. He trusts these women to be the witnesses. He notes that, uh, that the women went, they shared everything that they, that they saw. So everything he said was accurate and truthful and honest and sincere, all that stuff, right? They go and they, they tell this stuff, and the apostles didn't believe them. So I don't necessarily think this is a sexist thing. I don't think they go, oh. But these are women. They're inherently liars. You know, I don't think the apostles did that. The apostles have been with these women for, uh, for, for years, right? They've all been ministering together as a church, in a way, right? Uh, maybe that's not the right word to put it at that time, but they were ministering with Jesus. They're going around synagogue after synagogue, listening to Jesus. They're all part of the same team. They're part of Team Jesus. So I don't think they're like, we can't trust them. What did they know? I don't think that was it. I don't think it was a sexist thing because they were women. Uh, I think. Everyone who was close to Jesus shares a special bond, and it's just not that easy to believe a person came back from the dead. That's the part that's hard to believe, right? The obstacle isn't, but I heard it from a girl, right? The obstacle is, but he's dead. You get it, right? Okay, so I think they're just like, you can't be serious. Sure, you were at the tomb. Yeah, okay, we believe that the stone was rolled away and it was empty, but there's no way that he's alive. Maybe someone stole the body or whatever. You know, they've got all these, these, uh, these potential alternatives in their minds. Maybe, uh, maybe they, they said, no, 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 we know that Jesus will rise, but like that's like in the future. It can't be like on the third day after he was killed. It's still fresh, right? He's still like recovering you know, they're, they're like, it, it can't, like, what do you ta- he just died? He's not back. He just died. That's probably what's going on in their minds. So, a future resurrection, maybe an instant bodily resurrection right now, that's hard to accept. But <laughs> get into Simon Peter's head, right? There's Peter, who was formerly known as Simon. Simon Peter, okay? Get into Simon Peter's head. He must be having a breakdown right now. Okay? Uh there's no way that Jesus came back from the dead. That can't be. That's wishful thinking. But then he has seen time and time again, Jesus bring, uh, uh, like, knock out demons and, and heal sick people and give sight to the blind, all that kind of stuff, right? And he's seen people come back from the dead because Jesus said, come back to life. He's seen that happen. Jesus has always been full of surprises. Not only that, but Jesus has always been right. There's never a moment where Jesus has been wrong. And even when Peter thought Jesus was dead wrong, like ridiculously wrong, Jesus turned out to be spot on correct, right? Do you remember when Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And Peter's like, no way, you're crazy. Never. I would rather die. You have no idea who I am. I'm, I'm Peter. I'm stone, right? You you think I'm that fickle and weak you think I'm that scared come on you underestimate my faith and then you know just uh, a few hours later Jesus is at the house of the high priest and then some people go hey Peter aren't you one of the guys that were with him And he's like I don't even know the guy and three times he denies and then the rooster crows so here's Peter like there's no way Jesus is going to come back from the dead but he did say he would But there's no way. But he said he would. And so it's got to be in his head. More than any of the other apostles, this guy was the guy that was the most conflicted of like, do I believe him or not? Because like there are times where I knew he was dead wrong and yet he turned out to be spot on correct. So he has to find out. He has to know. Verse 12. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. He had to go. He had to figure it out, right? If you read John 20, uh, it says that Peter and John both ran to the tomb. Luke, again, there are two characters, but Luke only focuses on one of them. He just focuses on Peter. Peter runs into the tomb. John kind of waited outside, if you if you read in, in the book of John. But Peter runs in, he sees the clothes, he's like picking it up, he's like touching stuff, like what the, and he's marveling. That doesn't mean he believes. He's marveling, he's just, he's just, he's, his mind is, is dizzy, he's blown away. He's like, what is this? He's shocked, he's kind of numb or rattled or whatever. It doesn't mean he believes. It means he's confused and he's hoping, yet he's doubting. He's conflicted. And it'll take repeated appearances of Jesus to eventually convince all the apostles that Jesus returned. They have to overcome enormous amounts of doubt for for very understandable reasons. So, this here, I would argue, this here is not Peter's moment of belief but it's more like the first steps of faith, right? And many of us have that. If someone goes, when did you accept Christ? When did you, uh, when did you uh, submit to the Lord? When did you give your life to Jesus? We'd go, well, there were times where I think I really like started to get the gospel and stuff, but then like, I don't know, I kind of had like a weird phase and then eventually it all locked together and I said, no, I'm all in. So we have these these moments where there's like first steps of faith, but that might not be exactly when salvation was reality in your life. But there was something going on there. Peter here is not convinced, but he's open to discovery. And then Luke doesn't mention this, but sometime between verses 12, which is where we're at, and verse 13, which will come next, somewhere between there, Luke skips something, right? Jesus will actually appear to Mary Magdalene and the other women, and he'll also appear to Simon Peter. Luke doesn't tell us about it. He just skips it because I guess it doesn't serve his purpose, or he's running out of scrolls, so he's like, I just got to move this along, but... Jesus will have an appearance with them. I'll, I'll, I'll mention that later. I'll get, get more to that later. But just know between verses 12 and 13, other events happen that we don't hear about. Okay? In fact, if you, uh, if you ask yourself, like, how many times did Jesus appear to people after his resurrection? How many times did he appear to, like, different people and be like, you know, hey, I'm alive hey, check it out, I'm, I'm here, I've, I've been resurrected from the dead. How many times do you do that? Put, put a number in your head for a second, just take a guess. The answer is over 10 times. I don't know if you know that. You know, uh, keep an eye out on Facebook, I'll put all 10 up there. You know? But over 10 times after the resurrection, Jesus appears to different people and he says, I'm here, like I said I'd be. I've been raised from the dead. Right, so there, are, there, are, like none of the gospels tell you everything that, that uh, took place. They all just tell you the stuff that's important to them. There are m- moments that Luke skips. Okay, that was the resurrection. That was the resurrection. Now, uh, at the empty tomb, let me give you like this this application that the apostles had to make. In fact, at each scene, I'll just kind of throw down a bit of a, an application that the apostles needed in order to get where we're at today, okay? What, what they needed to know at the, at the empty tomb, this whole thing with the empty tomb, they just had to know that God did the impossible, that Jesus did the impossible, that Jesus died and was raised back to life. He accomplished what he came out to do. They had to know that. That was the big thing for them. Because even though we get it, we're, we're spoiled, we get it, we get it at church. They didn't have that, right? They were were creating church. They were part of Jesus, putting his church together. So for them, they had to come to that understanding. Jesus was crucified, and then on the third day, he was raised back to life, which means he was greater than our sin, and he defeated the grave. All right, let's go to the, uh, the road to Emmaus then, verse 13. That very day, two of them, two of whom? That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Again, you have a moment where it says that they they couldn't understand. like It was withheld from them. So it seems like God is involved in this in some way, right? Um, Notice this is the same day, that very day. It's the same day the characters are just called two of them. Two of them, right? And uh, we'll, we'll find out in verse 18 that one of them is named Clopas. And then the other, we never find out his name. Uh, these are followers of Jesus, but they're not of the 11 remaining apostles. There were 12 apostles, but then one was Judas, and he betrayed Jesus, and he hanged himself, right? So you have 11 apostles remaining. That's, that's the 11. These two guys are, some of the, uh, are two of the disciples that also hung around the apostles, followed Jesus and stuff, but they're not the main 11. They're, they're uh, side characters, NPCs, right? So Clopas is one of them. We don't know the other guy's name, uh, but they're followers of Jesus. They don't even know what to believe. They're discussing together as they're walking. Uh, that word discuss can also be translated debate, argue, insist, Right? So they're disputing with one another. Jesus joins them, <laughs> and, which is hilarious. Uh, Jesus joins them. Uh, it, you know, it says Jesus himself drew near them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So he, he walks up. He's in like spiritual stealth mode. So even though they can see him, they don't quite get who he is, which almost implies that his face looks different after resurrection. Um, verse 17. And Jesus said to them, Hey, what's this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? What are you guys talking about? I want to know, right? And they stood still. I like this. They they, they stood still. They were walking. They stood still, looking sad. That's like one of the few moments where you get like a lot of emotion, you know, emoted in the text. Verse 18. Then one of them named Clopas answered... Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Right? Like, uh, retranslate that. Think about the tone. Are you stupid? Right? That's what he's saying, right? He just looked Jesus in the eyes and he's like, Are you stupid? Are you the only one that doesn't know? You gotta be kidding me. And then, I like how Jesus, verse, uh, verse 19, and he said to them, Oh, what things? Right? What? He knows everything, but he said, Oh, what, what, what things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see. So there's Jesus. Uh, He baited this conversation. I really like that he did this. You know, he's like, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, what do you mean, what are we talking about? He's like, what? No, just tell me. Come on. What what things? What is this? It seems kind of mean, right? It's, it's, it seems kind of mean. Like, is he, is he deceiving them? We'll talk about that in a little bit. But It does expose the matters of the debate. When he goes, what things? What is this? uh, It immediately gives them reason to talk about Jesus, and and it exposes what they know about Jesus. They're like, we believe he was a prophet from God. He could do miracles. He had incredible teaching. And then they go, and we know that our leadership, our chief priests and elders, they were the ones that decided he should be crucified and it's been three days. You know, we we thought he was going to redeem Israel, and so they lay it all out there. They have all these different fragments of their of of what they believed, and they put it all out there. They talk about how uh, how e- even earlier this morning, some of our women went saw the tomb. They said it's empty. The body's not there. They came back. They told us, and we're like, what? And then two of our guys went. They went to the tomb. It was empty, just like the women said. And they came back, but they, none of them saw Jesus. None of them saw Jesus. Okay, that's what Clopas and the other guy, that's their report. They're like, that's, that's what happened this morning. Now, if you notice, in verse uh, 24, it says, Some who were with us went to the tomb, found it just as the women had said. That's Peter and John. And that means that when they went to the tomb, and then when they came back and reported... That means the women have talked to the the apostles. Peter and John have come back, talked to the apostles. Clopas and this other guy were there. They heard all of that. Everything that happened in the morning. And then probably after that time is when they left. That all was in Jerusalem. And then Clopas and the other guy, they leave. They're now taking this seven-mile journey to Emmaus. It establishes a little bit of the chronology that was all on the same day. It's fresh in their minds. It's Sunday And this is what's happening basically Sunday afternoon. They probably left after lunch. Verse 25. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? There's the rebuke. And then verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them all the scriptures, uh, all, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. There's the invitation. Right? He goes, How could you not believe? I rebuke you for not believing. Now I invite you to start believing. And he lays it out, right? He, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. That's a nice way to refer to the entire Old Testament. There's a rebuke and an invitation there. He rebukes them for not believing what the prophets spoke on. They didn't get it, but they weren't the only ones, right? Nobody got it. Nobody understood. But you don't compare yourself to other people. That's that's not how we do it. We don't don't compare faith and go, well, if they didn't get it, then I'm allowed to not get it. It's not how it works. Everyone missed it. Everyone's held responsible. That's how God sees it. Everyone missed it, but everyone is held responsible. Jesus treats the Scriptures as understandable. Perspicuous. You could have known. There's no secret mystical meaning that has to be magically revealed to you. You could know it. Whatever the original author meant to the original audience is what you can objectively study to ascertain. For us, thousands of years after it's been written, it takes some extra work to bridge the centuries and the language barrier, the cultural gap, all that kind of stuff, but you do not need some kind of supernatural experience to reveal meaning to you. It is discernible. It is knowable. You certainly need the activity of the Holy Spirit to have it evoke a change in your heart. Yeah, absolutely. But in terms of just understanding what happened, what took place, that is knowable. Jesus' rebuke seems to get them to listen very, very carefully to what he's going to say next because he's like, you know, he's like, you foolish ones, don't you realize that the entire Bible so far, the Old Testament, has been written to talk about this event? And they must be like, what? So... He, he's bringing them in here right he's like don't you get it this was what all of it was about this was the plan and then he invites them to understand the truth all the old testament points to jesus in some way all the books of moses point to jesus in some way That doesn't mean every time you read a paragraph in the Old Testament, it's symbolic of Jesus. It's not symbolism. That's not not the point, right? It means that each book tells a message that culminates in the cross and the future eternal kingdom. It says that everything about the Old Testament makes you end up thinking we need Jesus. That's, that's what that's going to do. Like the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they all point us to Jesus. Genesis shows us how sin began and how God set apart a people for himself and it promised a Savior as soon as sin happened. So we know that there's a problem. We need a Savior. Exodus is a picture of a Savior delivering people out of slavery, giving them truth, and leading them to blessing and promise. That's, that's absolutely a physical, historical object lesson for what Jesus will do for us spiritually. Leviticus lays down the perfect righteous law of God, making us very aware of his holiness and our sin and our need for something to atone for us, to forgive us because we are lawbreakers. Numbers in Deuteronomy show how rebellious, even, even blessed people are. God's people walking around in the wilderness, saved by God, and yet how rebellious and, uh, and wicked they could be. And God won't ignore their rebellion He'll deal with their sin, but still, even despite their sin, their continuing sin, he's still faithful to save. The prophets are all calling God's rebellious people to repentance, promising a savior and a future where sin is no more. Every book of the Old Testament points to Jesus, and every book of the New Testament discusses the reality of Jesus. The Bible is not about you and your career, Your significant other, your personal dreams, your past suffering. The Bible is about Jesus. Do not wrap the Bible around your life. Wrap your life around the Bible in worship of Jesus. How do these guys react to this, right? Jesus just lays it out. He's like, all the the Old Testament is like this, and he's, he's got time. They're walking seven miles, yes? Now, they're on uneven terrain in sandals, So we're going to say that that takes, even if they're hustling, somewhere in the vicinity of two to three hours. So he gives like the most epic sermon on that walk. They get to, to listen to him unpack the entire Old Testament right then and there. And I tell you the truth, at the end of that conversation, these two men are the best top theological scholars in all the world now. Because they now understand the scriptures accurately in a way that no one else does. Verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Okay. Remember that Jesus is still unrecognized at this point. They don't realize it's Jesus. They just think it's a stranger, right? Um, He's still unrecognized, and it feels weird again. Is he tricking these guys? Is he deceiving these guys? Like, what is this? He pretends he's going to keep walking, and they're like, no, 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 stay. And he's like, oh, but I'm going to keep going. Is he, though? Is this this a lie? Like, you know, is Jesus a liar? I think people who think that Jesus was lying miss the, the, the cultural norms, Right, Because it would be wrong for these two disciples to let this this man keep walking off in the night by himself because it's dangerous. It'd be wrong for them not to offer for him to stay. At the same time, it would be wrong for a stranger to be like, I guess I'll just stay with you guys. I'll just sleep on your couch. It would be wrong for him to do that too. And it would be kind of weird and rude, and, and uh, it, it would be unusual to even ask, can I stay here? Because now you put pressure on them. So if they didn't invite, he would probably still keep walking. So I, yeah, that, I, I don't think he's, he's being dishonest there. If they didn't invite, he would keep walking. But it's Jesus, he knows they're gonna invite him to stay, right? because he happens to know mm, everything. Uh, I, I come from an Asian family, so I understand this in this weird Asian way. If ever you try to offer uh, a gift, like you know, like money, to someone, like you know, you, you see someone, it's their, uh, it, it's their birthday, you try to give them a gift, right? You go here, take this. They go no, 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 no. You go just take it, take it. They go no, I couldn't take it. You go just take it. They go oh, okay, 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 <laughs> and then they receive it. Now. It's it's all an act, okay? You act like you're giving. They act like they're refusing. You act like you. They act like they're refusing. And then and then at the end of it, you give it, and they go, "Okay, I'm very reluctantly receiving this, right? But really, in the mind, it's like, uh, I don't want to give this. And they're like, "Oh, give it to me, right? <laughs> it's all an act, but it's cultural, and like it it would be wrong for you not to go through that little dance, okay? Okay. Okay. I. I I'm going to remove that from the recording. All right. <laughs> you can see it, 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 it's not lying. It's just, that's just part of the culture. As you can see, Jesus was willing to reveal himself. He knows they're going to invite him in, right? And, he, uh, and he's, not only does he know they're going to invite him in, he's planning on it. So, of course, he's going to do, do the cultural norm thing, right? What's most important is that this happens. Like, he acts like this. He's like, I'm going to keep, keep going. And like, no, you must stay. He does this in this moment where they still don't know it's Jesus, because that tells us something, okay? Uh, they've explained what they're confused about and stuff, and, and they're talking to this stranger, and a stranger explained the Bible to them, and everything made sense. It all points to Jesus and proves it all, and everything starts to line up in their heads. Like, this is consistent with what Jesus says, and it's consistent with what the Old Testament says, and, like, why didn't we get this? And there, he's rebuking us because we should have gotten it, and he's right? It would have been very different if they saw Jesus walk up and he goes, everyone, I'm Jesus. And they go, oh, Lord, how are you back? And he just explains to them, they'd be like, yeah, of course you're right, you're Jesus. But this is a stranger in their minds, right? They didn't recognize him. So their response, whatever, however they respond, is undoubtedly the response weighed only by what they heard. They are not biased because it's Jesus, a stranger told them what the scriptures mean. They respond, and they respond in faith. Something inside their hearts lights up with conviction and joy and wonder. Their pulse races at the world-shattering truth. They didn't believe because they saw some miracle. They, they believed because they heard the scriptures, right? If they see Jesus and they recognize it's Jesus, they go, it's a miracle. So that's why I believe. I believe because I saw. But they said, No. I believe because the scriptures said so. I get it. That's what's happening. So Jesus uh, Jesus has explained to them the scriptures, and they're going to get it. you'll, You'll see they're asking him to stay because they don't think he's a heretic. They don't think he's a false teacher. They don't think he's a crazy person. That's why Jesus let himself remain unrecognized by them, so they can respond by faith, not by sight. And you, you'll see it in their reaction. They don't, they don't know this guy, but they urged him strongly to stay. right? That's not just manners. because they, they could be like, you should stay. And he said, no, I'm going to go. And they could be like, well, if you need a place, you're welcome to come here. But they urged him strongly. They sense in him a believer. It resonates with who they are. They're believers. They can't let him walk alone at night. It's unsafe. He needs food and lodging. They insist on blessing him with hospitality since... He blessed them with truth. So Jesus will stay and he'll have dinner with them. And what's weird is he's gonna gonna like take a weird role here. Uh, If you stay, you know, to have dinner with someone, the host, you know, whoever is in charge, is supposed to break bread and distribute it. And, you know, he's supposed to be the host. But Jesus is gonna do that. He's gonna break bread and bless it, give thanks. And he's gonna pass it out and stuff. So the dynamics are very clear that even though one of them, uh, Clopas or the other guy, is in charge and maybe is the homeowner or whatever, Jesus is now the leader. They understand him to be a teacher, so it's, it, you know, like he's the guy in charge. He should break the bread. He should distribute it, and they, they, they are not offended by this. It would be rude for someone who's not supposed to break the bread to do it. It'd be rude for someone who's not supposed to pray for the meal to do it, but when Jesus does it, they're, they're down, They're like, yeah, you're in charge. Because they believed. Verse 30. When Jesus was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And then, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. It's so frustrating, (laughs) right? They're like, Jesus, peace. (laughs) He's just gone, right? Uh... they this this whole time they've been regarding him as teacher they're like he, what he's saying is true the, you know and it speaks of their faith of what they heard so why did jesus break the bread maybe because he's teaching maybe maybe because of that but if, if you're like ah, that's not entirely like certain we don't know well, what other reason could there be well it could be they have no appetite so the host didn't want to go get bread and like eat it's hard to eat when you're grieving so then Jesus is like, no, we should eat. You know why? And he's getting bread. Because I'm not dead, fools. Right? And then they're like, Jesus? And then, <laughs> right? That's like something is going on there. Um the the genuine care that they had about Jesus, they're still processing. It's hard to eat when you're grieving. It could be that. Or they're just submitting to this stranger as the teacher, whatever. But the narrative about the two disciples on the road to Emmaus really happened, and it shows us uh, so much about their faith. I speculate with other people that when, when Jesus grabbed the bread, they're in like a room, right? They're probably sitting at one of those tables that's shaped like a U, and uh he he's, he's, takes the bread, he gives thanks, he, he, he breaks the bread and he starts distributing it. And it, it probably starts to feel very familiar. They're like, wait, the way that he started this whole, like the way that he's holding the bread, the way that he goes like, Father in heaven, and then the way that he breaks it, starts to pass it out. They're like, I feel like I've seen this before. Like I've seen a man do that and multiply bread and fish. feed thousands of people i've seen that before i've seen a guy break bread and go this is my body take this in remembrance of me i've seen this happen before where he takes bread and blesses it so i think somewhere in there in the familiarity of, of of the routine it harkens back to chapters 9 and chapters 22 and moments like that where they've been in a room with jesus who prays breaks bread passes it out and then they go I know who this is, and maybe as Jesus is doing it, maybe they're like, what's, "What's what's that on his hands?" And they see scars. Who knows? It doesn't mention that, and I don't think that they're trying uh, that Luke is trying to say that they operated by sight, but maybe they saw scars. But they were getting it; it was making sense. I think what I love about this, this moment with the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus is that it's, uh, it is a true historical event. You should know. That it really happened. But even just if you look at this story, it serves as such a great metaphor for the Christian life. It's like people journeying. And we ought to do what Jesus did. We ought to go journey with them and spend that entire seven-mile journey Showing them how all the scriptures are about Jesus. And all of these things had to happen. And as they hear it, something takes place and they believe it. And so they don't go, I don't want anything to do with this. They say, come in and fellowship. Be part of our company. And lead us. And in doing that, the realization dawns. Jesus is real. Jesus is alive. I know they believed. Verse 32. They said to each other. This is after Jesus vanishes. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Right? They didn't go, how did he do that? How did this guy vanish? Was that really Jesus? They didn't do that. They go, oh my gosh, no wonder. No wonder our hearts were burning. Something came alive. This man had the words of eternal life. He told to us the scriptures and it makes sense to us. It lined everything up. Everything the Bible was saying, everything Jesus had said. It all made sense. Didn't our hearts burn within us with joy, with wonder, amazement as we marvel? The mark of a true believer, still in the metaphor of, of this story, if you, were take this metaphor, uh, if you were to take this story as a metaphor for the Christian life, the mark of a true believer is that your hearts burn within you When you learn that the Scriptures keep pointing you back to Jesus and the forgiveness He provides, the fellowship He he brings, the life that is administered to you because He has risen from the dead. Now they know what Jesus said about the Scripture, pointing to Him. They know that it's all true. These are the top two theological scholars in the world What do they do with this knowledge? Do they go, wow, what a great sermon and a great meal after that sermon. Now let's go home. Or now let's go out and hang out with our friends. Or do they go, now let's just go to bed because it's late. Is that what they do? No. Verse 33. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Can you imagine walking the seven-mile walk again? They're like, we got to go back. Clopas is like, we got to go back. The other guy's like, well, hold on. Really? And Clopas is like, we got to go, right? They returned, and they found the 11, the 11 apostles, and those who were with them gathered together, and the 11 were already saying, in verse 34, those 11 were already saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon, Simon Peter. And then... These two guys told what had happened on the road and how Jesus was known to them in the breaking of the bread, right? In the breaking, of, they're like, right when he broke the bread, we understood who he was. And then, oh, that Jesus, he just took off, right? That, it's like the final thing. When, when you get who Jesus is, you gotta talk it, to people about it. That's, that is the natural reaction of faith. You gotta let people know. These disciples these two guys, th- I think about this. These two guys came back to evangelize the apostles. Right? Who can claim that? right? They just went from looking Jesus in the eye going, are you stupid, to now coming to the apostles and going, hey, we got to teach you the truth. What a day. They, evan- they, I mean, they came to evangelize the apostles. It was dark. They'd already had dinner. It's dangerous, but they're like, who cares? This is way more important. They couldn't even wait. They ran back to Jerusalem to tell the apostles. And when they get there, the apostles are already talking amongst themselves. Now, if, if the seven-mile journey takes, let's say, three hours, the round trip would be three hours, three hours, that's six hours, but then they, you know, they ate dinner, they had to like, prepare it and stuff, so let's give it an hour. So that's seven hours that they've been gone. If they left right after lunch, Left at, let's say, 1 o'clock. The earliest they'd be back is like 8 p.m. Okay? So they, uh, they've been gone for a good long time now. So events have happened ever since they left. And what's, what goes on is uh, it turns out that the apostles are all talking, and, uh, and they're saying, the Lord has risen indeed and he has appeared to Simon. So uh, sometime... Between the, the empty tomb and then the road to Emmaus, somewhere in there, Jesus revealed himself in physical form and said, I'm alive. He revealed himself to Mary Magdalene and the women, and then separately to Simon Peter. Those events actually took place. Now, if you remember, Jesus was talk, uh, walking on the road with the disciples uh, on the road to Emmaus. Uh, they stopped, they broke bread, they vanished. Where did Jesus go? Where did Jesus go? Well, he's got like three hours before they get, get back to Jerusalem and stuff, right? So maybe during the three hours is when he showed up to Mary Magdalene. You know, had five, ten-minute conversation with the women and then showed up separately to Simon Peter. He, he would have uh, a lot of time. When you remove commute time, you have so much time, right? So he can just be where he wants to be. These two two guys have to make that seven seven mile journey back. They hustle. They you get there two to three hours, plenty of time for Jesus to meet with anyone. So he, he has two at least two separate meetings with uh, Mary and the, and the women, and then separately with Simon Peter. Maybe he did that even before these guys left. Who knows? But I think he has time to do that. Now, why does Jesus meet with Simon Peter alone? Maybe because Simon Peter was at the grave. He was the most frustratingly curious. He was confused and hoping and doubting and conflicted. And he's got to be still like reeling from the fact that he's like, oh my gosh, I denied Jesus three times. And then he looked me in the eyes. He emblemaled me. He looked into my soul and he saw my, my darkest failure. I got to know, is there any chance, any chance that he's alive and I can, I can say something? I could let him know that I do know him and I do love him. Is there something? God, just give me a moment. And Jesus apparently has appeared to Simon. Whatever moment they had, none of the gospel writers describe it to us. But by the time Clopas and this other guy get to the apostles, They're like, yeah, Jesus is definitely back. Mary Magdalene and the other women saw him, and Simon Peter saw him. So just like we had two angels testifying that Jesus was raised, now you have two disciples, Clopas and the other guy, testifying that Jesus was raised. And if you read into it, you also have uh, the women and Simon Peter knowing that Jesus was raised. Every time you get two or three witnesses, that's the legal way in, in, uh, in Israel to say that a matter is true. You need at least two witnesses. Uh, the apostles, I think, get it now. Simon Peter has already somehow seen Jesus. Uh, I'd say almost all of them now believe. Almost all. Now notice Jesus appears to people or reveals himself to people after they believe at least after those first steps of faith. He's never trying to prove himself. He always is just kind of waiting around in all these moments where people are like, wait a minute, I think, I think there's something to this. I'm open to discover. And then he shows up. Their faith comes. He reveals himself. And it's very possible that God is, has enabled their faith. The rest of the apostles have heard the women. They've heard Simon Peter. They heard these two disciples. They all believe except Thomas. There's this one disciple, one, one apostle. His name is Thomas. He gets bad press. The, people call him Doubting Thomas. How awful is that to like pick one thing that you suck at in one moment of your life, and that's just who you are, you know? Yeah, he's Doubting Thomas. Naturally, Jesus will appear to, uh, to the apostles. Uh, he's about to do that at the reunion at Jerusalem, which we're about to get to in verses 36 to 49. We're about to get to that. Uh, and Luke just says he appeared to all of them, but he, he leaves out Thomas. Thomas isn't actually there. Thomas is grieving by himself. He's, like, he's one of those people that's like, I'm sad. They're like, come, let's come for you. He's like, no, I want to be alone. <laughs> and he just sits in the field, you know? That's, I'm not making fun I am making fun. But, uh, but he, he's, he's grieving by himself. And then John chapter 20 will deal with that. That like, When Jesus appears at the reunion at Jerusalem, Jesus is about to appear. He's going he's gonna to have a reunion with his apostles. Thomas isn't even there. And so he'll appear again eight days later, and Thomas will get his own little moment. Luke doesn't tell us about that. He just kind of combines it all and, and speeds through it. It's okay. Um, the reunion at Jerusalem then, verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you, right? Just as suddenly as he disappeared at Emmaus, he very suddenly reappears here in Jerusalem, right? So they're talking about these things. They're like, yeah, I think he's alive. And they're like, are you sure? How do you know he's alive? And then poof, he's there, peace, right? And then everyone's like, I think he's alive, Verse 37, but they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit, right? That's, I don't know, have they ever seen a spirit before, right? They, uh, they're like, oh my gosh, like how did, like normal people go through doors, right? But what's this? And so they think that they're, they're seeing things. Verse 38, and Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. That it is I, myself, touch me, and see. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, right? He shows them his hands. He has to show them because they didn't believe. Everybody blames Thomas because Thomas is like, unless I see his hands and his feet, right? But where did Thomas get that idea? It's because they're like, we saw him, we saw his hands and feet. And he's like, no, well, unless I see it too, I won't believe. You know, like, he was just grieving. Just leave him alone. Okay, anyway. Uh, the the disciples are like, oh my gosh, it's a spirit. And Jesus is like, just check it out. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. I got the scars. It's really cool, right? Uh, And he's showing it to them. And then verse 41, while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And he's not hungry, but they're like, no way, this can't be. They're disbelieving for joy, which is like, you know, that's like a a very loving slap, right? Like, they didn't believe because they were overjoyed. You know, it's like, which one is it? Is it good or bad? Yes. So uh, they're disbelieving for joy. And Jesus is like, okay, okay, okay. Bring me a fish. Give me, give me the broiled fish. Let me show you. Show you. Like, he saw my hands. He saw my feet. Give me the fish. Give me the fish. So they bring him the fish, okay? They're going to, uh, verse 42, they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. He's like, it's me. It's me. Give me the fish. They gave it to him. <laughs> See? See? Spirit can't interact with the physical world, but I just did. You're not just having a weird hallucination as a group simultaneously of the same thing. I love how instantly Jesus appears and disappears. Of course, that freaks them out, and they're like still trying to put this together. He interacts with the physical world. He eats this fish in front of them, and they disbelieve for joy, but it's, it's too good to be true. They're like, I, I, I don't know if I'm ready for this, you know, like we loved Jesus and then we just saw him get murdered, but then he's back. Like, am, am I just going to be like, okay, they, they get it, but they're in shock. They're processing, they're internalizing. Verse 44, then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must." Be fulfilled. These are the words that I said to you. That's the Jesus way of saying, I told you so. The crucifixion and the resurrection were talked about in the Old Testament. This was the plan. Sacrificing a perfect lamb to atone for sins, to provide forgiveness, to make peace with God. That was the plan. Repentance. A heart that turns away from other gods, turns away from idols, turns away from irreverence, turns to worship the Holy One. This was the plan. The good news of salvation starting in Israel, then moving out to the nations to reach all peoples. This was the plan. This was always the plan. Verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now they get it. They had their moment where they go, okay, maybe there's something here. I'm open to discover. You know, Mary Magdalene and the women saw him, and Jesus appeared to Simon Peter too. So the, the apostles are like, okay. And then there are these two guys, Clopas and the, some other guy. Everybody says it's real. And so the apostles are like, okay, something's here. And then Jesus shows up. And he opened their minds to the scriptures. So either he gave them the understanding that they couldn't figure out on their own or he accelerated what they were already starting to figure out, whichever. The apostles would be commissioned to spread the gospel. But they have to wait 50 days after the cross for this moment, this other festival called Pentecost. That's when the Holy Spirit would come and empower them. And Luke will write all about that in the sequel to Luke. It's the book of Acts. And Jesus will stay with the apostles about 40 days teaching and training them for the mission. And then it's time for him to leave. We get to the hill of ascension where he takes his leave, verse 50. And he led them as far as or in the direction of Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Jesus takes the apostles in the direction of Bethany almost gets there. Bethany's on the other side of the Mount of Olives. He goes up. They're on the Mount of Olives. Acts chapter one says it's about a Sabbath journey. so like 0.6 miles or something like that. And then they they come back down. So they don't actually get all the way to Bethany. They're just going in that direction. This ending, this whole chapter, uh, really kind of rhymes with the opening chapter of the book, except it ends in a much more perfect and finished way. I mean, the opening of the book of Luke starts with the priest named Zechariah. He'll be the father of John the Baptist. This guy, this priest named Zechariah, he sees an angel and he falls down and he's bowing and he's in fear, just like the women saw angels and they bowed down in fear. And this this priest, Zechariah, uh, after after uh, he saw the angel and stuff, he was struck mute and he couldn't speak. He comes out, he's, he's doing his, his regular duty as a priest at the temple where the presence of God is. He's supposed to come out and give the priestly blessing, right? The Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you. Uh, he's supposed to give that priestly blessing, but he can't speak. That ability was was taken from him for a while. And yet here's Jesus at the end of this book Right there in verse 50, he lifts up his hands and he blesses them. He does the priestly duty that was ceased in chapter 1 of the book. He does the priestly duty as the great high priest. Because when he blesses them, you know they're blessed. When he blesses them, you know there's a, a special significance and meaning and power behind it that no other priest could bestow. All other priests are just vessels echoes. Jesus is the voice. Luke began with people blessing God, Zechariah and his wife, uh, Elizabeth, and then this other guy, Simeon. They bless God. When, When a person blesses God, that means they're praising God. And Luke ends with the apostles blessing God in the temple. Right at the beginning of the book, people were blessing God because they're like, We can't wait to see what you do with this baby Jesus. We can't wait. He'll redeem Israel. The redemption of Israel, the consolation. And now, the apostles are blessing God, saying, Look what he has done. He has redeemed Israel. And offers redemption to all nations, and will be His witnesses. And so they bless him. Jesus is the great high priest acting in that high priestly blessing role. And he's also the prophet of God, just like Elijah, the renowned as the greatest prophet in the Bible, and he was taken up into heaven, so Jesus too, was carried up into heaven. Notice how verse 52 says the apostles worshipped Jesus. They worshipped Jesus. And they knew, as we know, you only worship God, and there is only one God. Israel was the only monotheistic nation in the world. You don't worship anyone else. That would be blasphemy. That's what Jesus was accused of. But these apostles knew Jesus was God. He was the Son of Man, the Son of God. To us, the language speaks ontologically. Son of Man, if you're the Son of a man, you are a man. If you are the Son of God, you are a God. You are God. So we would think Son of Man means man, and Son of God means God. For many of the Jews, it was reversed. Son of God is a term that's used of other believers oftentimes in the Bible. Sometimes it's even used of angels. But the sons of God, you know, that those are believers, people who followed the Lord. Those are sons of God. It would indicate when you say this is a son of God, this means this is a believing man. When you say son of man, that comes out of Daniel chapter 7. It's a very specific title to this character in that chapter in Daniel 7, who, is, uh, who comes before God in heaven and then is given God's kingdom, God's glory, God's power, God's rulership, God's worship. All of it's given to him forever and ever. He is the king and he gets everything that belongs to God. He is God. So son of God to them meant believing man, son of man. Every time Jesus says, I'm the son of man, It was a claim that he's God. The apostles get it now. This is the Son of Man. This is the King. This is the Christ. And we will worship him. This is Luke's orderly account of Jesus. Hoping you will have certainty concerning what you have been taught. After 400 years of silence without a prophet, the silence was broken. Hope was born. In Jesus was greatness, divinity, humanity, and righteousness. He came to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captive, sight to the blind, freedom to the burdened and oppressed, to let us know that now is the time of the Lord's favor. He defeats hell. He gives life. He transforms souls. He cleanses the unclean. Forgiveness, acceptance, righteousness, and Sabbath rest are defined in Him. And all of that is accomplished on the cross and proven to us by the resurrection. What then happens to those who repent of their sins and believe in the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus? I think the same thing that happened to the apostles here. The marks are the same. At the empty tomb, they had to believe that God did the impossible. He actually defeated sin and death. On the road to Emmaus, They had to believe the scriptures in such a way that it ignited this fire inside them where they burned with joy and with wonder and awe as they heard that the scriptures keep pointing us to Jesus. At the reunion, they had to learn that they were the witnesses of these things. They had to go and tell the nations And then at the ascension, they had to learn to worship Jesus. That he's the son of God. He's the son of man. He is a man. He is God. They proclaim the the truth of Jesus, of the gospel. They worship Jesus every day, continually in the temple, blessing, praising God. Praise be to Jesus, the Savior to all. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Father we believe. We believe that Christ is risen from the grave. And we know that his resurrection has established for us the certainty of what we've been taught about his life, his ministry, And ultimately, his crucifixion. It means that indeed, God Himself has made the sacrifice of Himself to reconcile our broken relationship with Him. And that no matter how grievous our failures, shortcomings, and our sins, If we repent and trust in Jesus, we are forgiven. And we are accepted. And we are received. No matter how worthless we feel, you have established our worth. We were worth dying for. No matter how evil we feel, You have given us forgiveness by paying the penalty. No matter how guilty we feel, you have given us consolation. No matter how trapped we feel, you've given us liberty and redemption. We didn't know these things. We didn't start off with this knowledge, but you have given sight to the blind. We come to you with nothing, nothing to offer, nothing to stand on, nothing to boast in. We strike no bargain or deal. We just come pleading for mercy, and we rejoice over Jesus, who is good news to the poor. Thank you for the Lord's favor. Bless this church in our growing understanding of the scriptures, which always point us back to you. May we be witnesses of it to the rest of the world and worship you and bless you every day. All this we pray for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.